0: Welcome to Ips Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Frey, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Lisa A. Tucker, Associate Professor of Law at Drexel University, Thomas R. Klein School of Law. We will discuss her article From Contract Rights to Contact Rights: Rethinking the Paradigm for Post Adoption Contact Agreements, which will be published in the Boston University Law Review. So welcome to the show, Lisa.
1: Thanks, Brian. Thanks. And uh, it's nice to have some human contact right now.
0: Indeed. Indeed, it really is. This has been a real lifeline for uh, Mabel and I, uh, reaching out to people via the podcast. It's been really nice to talk
1: to people. Well, oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, so I really enjoyed uh, reading your paper for a number of different reasons, um, among which, as I mentioned to you earlier, I, I am myself an adoptee uh, who recently met my uh, birth father for the first time. Uh, so, you know, a lot of the observations you made in your paper really spoke to me, me personally. Uh, But for listeners who might not be so intimately familiar with adoption law and the circumstances surrounding adoption in the United States, I wonder if if you could talk a little bit about the history of adoption in the United States. Like, how has it changed over time, especially in the last 50 years or so?
1: Absolutely. So um, when adoption... It used to be, of course, that there was a societal norm that babies were only born in marriage. And so in the 1950s or so, um, there was a very, very big history of babies being born to mostly teenage unwed mothers, because if you think about it back in the 40s and 50s women tended to get married much younger than they do now men did too but women in particular and of course back then it was the woman's responsibility or the girl's responsibility if she became pregnant outside of marriage and so what was done with most of these young girls young women was that they were squirrelled away they would be you know visiting an aunt in another state or something but really what was happening was that they were being taken to maternity homes where their babies were taken from them at birth and they were pretty much forced to sign agreements to relinquish their children. Um, Many, many women have talked about the fact that they protested. They said, no, no, please let me keep my baby. Or within a couple of days after birth, please, I want my baby back. And they were told, no, uh, for moral reasons, you shouldn't be raising this baby or the adoptive family already has the baby or whatever. And at this point in time, adoption records were sealed. And so most of these women who gave birth in the 40s, 50s, 60s, think pre-Roe v. Wade, had no way of finding their children. And it wasn't until some states passed laws unsealing adoption records, and most of that has happened very, very recently, or with the advent of these DNA programs like the one that you found your birth father on. It wasn't until then that many of these women, now in their 50s, 60s, 70s, have been able to find their birth children when they wanted to. And of course, many of these birth children were never told that they were adopted. And so there has been a a very, very interesting um, societal development with that, with with understanding adoption from, from the far past. Now, what we found was, and what psychologists found, was that this was very damaging for children. If they knew that they were adopted, then most children had these fantasies about this unbelievably fantastic birth family that would come and, you know, whisk them away and they'd become a princess in Estonia or something like that. Um, and birth children or, and adopted children had a natural um, desire to know about their birth families. Now, that didn't mean that they weren't happy in their adoptive families or even that they didn't um, identify their adoptive parents as their parents. Many, many, many most adopted children did, but there was still this natural desire to know where did they come from? What were the circumstances? And for many adopted children who knew that they were adopted, there was this feeling of abandonment, like, did my birth parents not want me? And so the norm became... Um, after Roe v. Wade, both for that reason, for the benefit of the adopted children's psychological and emotional development, and also because after Roe v. Wade, abortion became legal and accessible for women across the country. What we found was that adoption started to shift to what was called open adoption. And an open adoption is where the birth parents and the adoptive parents know who each other are. This can be to any degree. This can be just, I know who you are and that's it, to I'm going to keep in close contact with you and visit the baby, you know, as the baby grows up, to anywhere in between. I'm going to get photos once a year or whatever. And there were two reasons why this became a very, very um, prevalent form of adoption in the United States. The first was for some of those psychological reasons that we talk about with the adopted children. They knew who their birth families were. They had, you know, usually some sort of relationship with them, even if it was only exchanging holiday cards once a year. But the other reason was because post um, Roe v. Wade, two things happened. One, it became possible to terminate a pregnancy legally. And so you didn't necessarily have children who resulted as often from unintended pregnancies. And number two, the societal norms started to shift in the 70s into the 80s, where it was much more socially acceptable to be a single parent. And so young women were not being forced or strongly, strongly, strong-armed, encouraged into relinquishing their babies for adoption. And what this meant was that there were many, many fewer babies available for adoption, and particularly healthy babies healthy newborns. And for people who cared about this, healthy white newborns were very, very scarce for adoption in the United States. And so one way that adoption became more and a more appealing option for young women who were experiencing unattended pregnancies was that they were told, hey, look, you can pick the family that is going to raise your child. And you can dictate the amount of contact that you want to have with that family and with that child until that child turns 18. And so what this did was it became very much a, what some, um, some people have called a seller's market in the sense that a young woman who became unintentionally pregnant and was considering adoption was really able to set the terms of that adoption in a way that was most comfortable for her. And that's the where where my article starts with these open adoptions and the birth mothers dictating the terms of these open adoptions.
0: Well, so Lisa, I mean, what what kind of rights, if any, do birth parents have with in relation to uh, children to their children after the children are adopted?
1: Yeah, so that's a terrific question, Brian, because I just I just uh, referred to the fact that the birth parents really hold most of the power prior to the adoption. Why is that? Well, it's because they have this, and again, some people have called it a a very desirable commodity, this healthy newborn that is available. And so the adoptive parents want to do everything possible to make sure that that adoption goes through, that she actually relinquishes the baby and that they can finalize the adoption. However, after the adoption is finalized, The adoptive parents are put in the position as if they were the biological parents. They have all of the parental rights. And in most states, this includes the right to decide how much contact they or their child will have with other people, including the birth parents. So even though the birth parents are biologically related to the child, post-adoption, when the adoption is finalized, they have no rights whatsoever um, with respect to the baby the adoptive parents hold all the cards. And this is a kind of an unusual situation if you think about it. And, and a lot of the, the theory and analysis has been um, in terms of sort of a contract type situation. Typically, in a contract, either both sides have equal bargaining power, or if they don't, for example, in a contract of adhesion, the party that holds the most power is going to be consistent throughout the life of the contract. Here, the power really shifts from pre-birth, pre-finalization of adoption to post-finalization of adoption. So for the adoptive parents, it's really a waiting game. But once that waiting is over, then they hold all the power with respect to how to raise the child and who the child has a relationship with. Well, so in your paper,
0: you write about post-adoption contact agreements. I wonder if you could talk about what those are, how they work, and whether or not they're enforceable.
1: Sure. So a post-adoption contact agreement is something that has arisen in this world of open adoption. And we should say that about 90 to 95% of adoption in the United States is now open to some extent, at least to the extent that the birth parent knows who is adopting her child. And mostly where she actually chooses that family. So one of the things that many adoption agencies and attorneys have started to offer is what's called a PACA, or a post-adoption contact agreement. And this is allows the birth mother, ostensibly, to choose a family to adopt her child who has similar goals and desires for that post-adoption contact that she does. So if she's someone who wants to see her child every year on the child's birthday, then she can dictate that and that will be memorialized in an agreement, which some people call a contract, but we'll talk in just a minute about why it's not really a contract. It'll be memorialized in an agreement and both the birth parents and the adoptive parents will sign this agreement. This takes place at about two thirds of adoptions in the United States today. So it'll really lay it out, you know, for the first five years of this child's life, I get to see her once a month or, you know, I get to get pictures of her every month or I get to have contact, whatever the contact is that they agree to both parties. And this is really, it sounds like a really great thing because then you have this terrific match between people who want the same thing. And it also is great for the kid because as we discussed before, it's much more psychologically and emotionally healthy for an adopted child to know where the child comes from, to understand this is why I was relinquished for adoption and so forth. So it sounds like a win-win situation. The problem with PACAs, with post-adoption contact agreements, is that in only about half of the states are they legally enforceable. So that's like just on its face, what the legislature says. The legislature says you can enforce this agreement And, um, you know, so it really is a contract. The problem with that is that almost all of the state statutes tell us conditions on which these PACAs can be enforced. And in almost all of them, one of the conditions is that enforcement is in the best interests of the adopted child. Well, it's very easy for adoptive parents to say, it's not in my kid's best interest, right? She gets upset when she, you know, has the birth mother come over, or she wants to stay home and play video games. She doesn't want to go over there and visit, or, you know, whatever it is. And so it's pretty easy to circumvent the enforceability of these contracts. Also, if you think about it, people who are relinquishing babies for adoption typically are doing it because they are not in a position to raise a child. Certainly, there are some people who become pregnant unintentionally and just don't want to be parents. But most of the people, and this has been backed up by many studies, most of the birth parents who relinquish children for adoption say, it's that it's not the right time in my life. I'm still in school. I don't have enough money. I have two other kids to support and I'm unemployed. And so some people call adoption a permanent solution to a temporary problem. In other words, if this birth parent became pregnant at another time in her life, and in fact, about half of pregnancies in the United States are unintended. But if this birth parent became unintentionally pregnant at a different uh, point in her life, she would choose to parent. But this isn't the right time, so she is relinquishing the child for adoption. So what does that mean? It means that she is financially probably not in a great position. However, adoption is very, very expensive in the United States, anywhere from 50 to $100,000 for most private adoptions. And so the adoptive parents typically have financial resources. So think about how that would play in a litigation situation. If you went in to enforce this PACA, the birth parent would, even if they had rights to enforce it, have a very difficult time actually doing so, because the adoptive parents would have all the resources to hire lawyers, take this through the courts, and so on. And so it really turns out to be a very inequitable situation. And remember, that's only in about half of the states. In the other half of the states, um, public policy dictates, the legislature has said that even if you've got this written agreement between the birth parents and the adoptive parents, it goes against public policy adoptive parents are the legal parents of the child. And so therefore, this PACA is not enforceable. Well, Lisa, i mean, I wonder if you
0: could talk a little bit about this enforceability question. I mean, normally in contract law, if parties have a negotiated agreement that they both like discussed and came to a meeting of the minds, we would say that this is the kind of thing that would be enforceable. What are the public policy reasons for not making these agreements enforceable. And you think that is good policy or bad policy?
1: Well, again, the public policy reasons where the states say officially that it's not enforceable Mm -hmm. is because we have a tradition, and there's tons and tons of case law on it going up to the Supreme Court, that when a child is adopted, the adoptive parents become the legal parents of the child. And therefore, they have all the rights commensurate with that. And certainly, um, as part of our privacy rights, um, one of the rights is to choose how to raise your children. If you're an adoptive parent, this is your child, and therefore you can make choices that you think are in the best interests of your child, including deciding that, yeah, yeah, I thought it would be a good idea for the kid to see her birth mother, but I've changed my mind about that, so I'm just going to cut that off. I think that for most people in states where PACAs are unenforceable, this is probably a good faith thing. They just don't think it's working out. But it's really important for us to also think about the fact that this could be very, very strategically done. Let's think about a birth mother for a minute. We just said that she is in a position where she is, um, you know, she's in a difficult position. She's at a difficult point in her life. She's found herself unintentionally pregnant Usually she doesn't have a lot of money. Usually she's not in circumstances where raising this child is going to be possible for her. At least she feels that way. So what is she feeling right now? Well, all the studies show that she's feeling scared. She's feeling like she has a big problem she doesn't know how to solve. For some of these young women, there's still a lot of shame involved. And so now here comes this adoptive family that she's picked through an agency and they tell her, while she's still pregnant. You are the most wonderful person we've ever met. You are so brave and so fantastic. And we are so grateful to you. And you are always going to be part of our family because we're writing this down in this agreement. And that's what she needs right then. Emotionally, she needs somebody to embrace her and say, you are safe and you are going to be okay. And we're going to take great care of your baby. And you now have a solution to this problem. And so strategically, lawyers in unenforceable states are in a position where ethically they have to advise their adoptive parent clients, hey, look, you can enter into this agreement with this young woman, but you do not have to actually follow through with it. Once the adoption is finalized, you can make whatever decision you want. You can follow the agreement or you don't have to follow the agreement. And this does happen in a bigger proportion of cases that you than you would think. There are many, many groups for birth parents who talk about the fact that the tables were completely turned on them after the adoption was finalized
0: mm, well at least that there was one thing in your paper that as a professional responsibility instructor i found quite shocking and honestly a little troubling was the idea that in some cases lawyers are representing not only the adoptive parents but also the birth parent is is that really true and how can that be
1: That is really true, and typically it is in a situation where um, adoptions, private adoptions in the U.S. usually happen in one of two ways. Either it's through an adoption agency, and many of these adoption agencies are religiously affiliated, or it's through an attorney who is in family law private practice, and part of their practice is locating um, birth parents for these adoptive parents. Um, So their clients are the adoptive parents. They cast a wide net and they are able to find birth mothers and match them with their adoptive mother, um, uh, adoptive parent clients. Um, I have an interest in adoption too. My two nieces were adopted through open adoption, and uh, one of them was in one of these attorney type situations. So, usually in the attorney type situation, in states that allow it, the attorney will just say, Hey, I got your back to, to the birth parents. I've got these clients. Everybody here wants the same thing. You don't have any money. I'm just going to take care of this for you. And some states do still ethically allow that.
0: Wow. Well, so in your paper, you propose an alternative paradigm for thinking about uh, post-adoption contact. Um, and really, I think, if I may, like kind of the way we think about adoption more generally, I wonder if you could talk about the proposal that you make in the paper, and why you think it's better for birth parents, for adopted children, and, and maybe for adopted parents as well.
1: Sure. So let me start by saying that even in open adoption, the parties do not have to enter into a post-contact adoption or post-adoption contact agreement into a PACA. Um That's not a requirement in any state of an open adoption. So this is a completely voluntary thing that they do in the first place. Um so it might be that some adoptive parents who really don't want contact with the birth parent will say, "Hey, hmm, I actually don't want contact with this birth parent." And you know what? That's a really good thing for the birth parent to know up front because if you've got this young woman who's scared and, you know, and unsure and she wants to make sure she picks exactly the right family for her baby, She should know up front that this family is ambivalent or against contact with her. Right now, the way PACAs are treated as contracts, she has no way of knowing that. And of course, one other thing about enforceability that we didn't talk about, Brian, is that typically when you have a breach of contract, what's the the remedy that's available? Well, it's money damages. Here, there are no money damages that will suffice. So the only thing, only remedy that's available is an equitable remedy, specific performance. So in other words, you're now taking adoptive parents who are the legal parents and forcing them to have contact with the birth parent. And there are all kinds of public policy reasons why people think that might be a bad idea. So a PACA, it seems to me, should only be executed if both parties sincerely have a meeting of the minds where the birth mother says, this is the type of contract I want after the adoption's finalized and the birth parent, or excuse me, the adoptive parents actually really want that too. Now, remember, there are way more adoptive parents out there than there are birth parents. So this would give the birth parent much more security in I'm choosing an adoptive family because she would be able to find a family who really wanted it. Because here's my proposal: my proposal is that instead of treating PACAs as contracts, we should treat them as almost akin to a custody or visitation type situation. Let's think about custody for just a minute. I should tell you that I am divorced. I have two children. My children are now um, over 18, but when I was divorced, they were not. And so um, I had to enter into a custody agreement with my ex-husband. Now, the presumption in a custody agreement in any state and visitation um, is that neither birth parent will be cut off from biological children unless there are very extreme circumstances. And even in very extreme circumstances like abuse or active addiction or active psychosis, supervised visitation is usually still ordered by the court. So there is almost no situation in any state where when you have divorced parents, one parent is completely deprived of all custody or even all visitation. By virtue of the fact that they are that child's parent, they have a right to see their children. This is even true, by the way, where the the biological parent who is divorced, um, the non-custodial parent, is in prison. Most parents in prison still have a right to visitation. You just have to work out the logistics of that. So what I propose here is that the birth parents who are relinquishing their children for adoption can enter into an agreement with the adoptive parents for contact. And that 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 agreement will be honored because the birth parents will be treated almost like a non-custodial parent is in a divorce, that the birth parents will have visitation rights by virtue of the fact that this is their biological child and the other party has agreed to them. And if the other party stops the visitation, just like in a divorce type situation, the birth parent would then have rights to enforce the visitation. Um, This gives her rights that don't terminate at the finalization of the adoption and even don't substantially diminish. One of the proposals I have also for being able to enforce these agreements is that part of the agreement will be that the adoptive parents put some amount of money into an escrow fund every month. Maybe it's $100. Maybe it's $50. But if that money is ever needed to enforce the agreement, the money will be accessed so that the the birth parent can go to court and enforce the agreement. If it's never needed because the the agreement is honored, then at the age of 18, that uh, money would be converted into a 529 fund uh, for the adopted child's uh, higher education expenses. Well, is it
0: currently possible for adopted or rather for birth parents can adoptive parents to enter into this kind of relationship? And if not, why not? I mean, is this a good idea because it would benefit the children? I mean, that that's ultimately my understanding is that it would be good for the children, right? I mean, you know, how should how should we think about this in the context of a best interest of the child standard?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think I've already explained why this is best for the birth parents. This is undoubtedly, according to every study of adopted children, better for the adopted children. Open adoption has been shown in every study ever done that it's psychologically, emotionally, developmentally healthier for adopted children to know about their birth parents, even to know who they are, to meet them, to have some kind of contact with them. And, uh, and so it's really, really beneficial to the child. It's also beneficial to the child to see that they have other important people in their lives who care about them and love them, just like children benefit from knowing that teachers or caretakers, daycare providers, nannies care about them and love them. It is beneficial for them to understand, there's this other person in my life. And studies have really shown that this is not confusing for adoptive children, adopted children. They know who their parents are. Their parents are their adoptive parents. But they understand that there's this other person who made a really good decision for my best interests and who still cares about me and wants to have contact with me on an ongoing basis. Now, to answer your second question, no, this scheme does not exist in any state right now. There is no state in which a birth parent can try to enforce this under, uh, you know, vis-a-vis, you know, sort of a um, semi-visitation legal theory. But I think it should. And I've talked to some family law judges and some family law attorneys, and they say, wow, this would really make my life easier. It would really make everybody's life easier if this were the model we were to adopt, because then there wouldn't be the betrayal on either side. And it would be much more straightforward for us to say, here's where the rights lie. And here's how we go about making sure those rights are respected.
0: Well, Lisa, I got to say, I personally couldn't agree with you more. And I found this paper really interesting and powerful and personally meaningful. So thank you so much oh, so
1: for
0: coming on the program to talk about it. And in closing, I was wondering if we could pivot a little bit because you have sure. a really cool new project that I think listeners will be really excited to hear about. And I wonder if you could talk about it a little bit and let people know when it's going to be available.
1: Sure. Uh so the big the first thing I should tell you is I was a drama major in uh, college. I'm a huge musical theater nut, and I am what's called a Hamill fan, which is a you know diehard fan of the musical Hamilton. Um and several years ago, I realized well, maybe two years ago, I realized that I am not alone in this, that many of my lawyer and law professor friends love Hamilton as much as I do. It's really clever, it's really smart, it's really insightful, it really makes us think. And I realized that lawyers and law professors were actually citing to the musical, whether in briefs or in uh, law review articles, even uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, uh, Breyer recently cited to Hamilton in an opinion. Um, And so I got together a bunch of law professor and lawyer friends, people who have all different points of view, whether they're IP um, attorneys or um, professors, family law, feminism, um, You name it, it's in there. People who wanted to look at some legal issue through the lens of Hamilton the musical, or people who thought that the musical actually had something to say about a legal issue that they were interested in. And so this book is coming out in uh, the fall from Cornell um, University Press. Um, it's called Hamilton and the Law. And it is a series of 33 essays by a lot of professors that people will know um, about Hamilton. Um, it's, not, it's an academic book, but it's a very accessible academic book. What I asked my contributors to do was write about 2,500 words in the style of maybe an article for The Atlantic, something that was smart and interesting, but was also ex- accessible to a general readership. So I'm hoping that it's going to find a readership and an audience um, for Hamill fans everywhere, but particularly for lawyers and law professors who who think this would be a fun read.
0: Great. Well, as one of the peer reviewers for the book and someone who has never actually even seen or heard any songs from the...
1: Brian, we're not supposed to tell that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I totally thought the book was great anyway.
1: Thank you.
0: If even I loved the book then I think Hamilton fans will love it like orders of magnitude more Um, I thought it was a really uh, fantastic piece of work the contributions were phenomenal great idea and really beautifully executed
1: oh that is so nice thank you well I'm really excited I just got the page proofs yesterday so it's almost there
0: (laughs) awesome well thanks so much for coming on the show Lisa
1: thank you Brian it was great
2: I was sent to an orphan's home to live without mom and dad. As years went by, I tried to forget the home that I once had. Each night I prayed when I to find me a new mom and dad To teach me the wrong from the right Then one day, while playing outside Some kind folks came up to me Said, son, you look like the lad we once had Would you please Belong to me. At last I found what I. For me I given to me a new mom and dad.